Hello, everyone. This is Jim Kelly. Welcome back to Free Reads. And here is part two of the interview that my good friend John Kessel did with me at ReaderCon in July of 2008. You will excuse, I hope, the froggy voice. I seem to have a cold. John asks a few more questions and then throws me to the audience. Since they largely consist of friends and other people kindly disposed toward me, which is, I think, why they laugh at my jokes, most of what they ask are pretty much softball questions. You'll hear a bit about my future plans. Executive summary, I'm going to keep writing. My friendship with John, my other career as a playwright, my epitaph, and opera. Opera? I want to thank everyone on the committee at ReaderCon for making me their guest of honor, but I especially need to acknowledge my friend Michael Matthew, who recorded this interview and graciously agreed to let me share it with you. Thanks, Michael. And let me urge you once again to attend the best little con in science fiction, ReaderCon, in its 20th incarnation. It will take place July 9th through 12th and feature two fabulous writers, Elizabeth Hand and Greer Gilman, as guests of honor. And now, back to the Q&A. There uh, something you, you you still seek to do? I, I guess I you know what what the, is your ambition at this point? I've already told my Clarion students that they win the Nobel Prize for Literature before I do. I'm going to have to come and kill them. Uh, <laughs> no, when I set out to do this thing, I thought I'd like to be a writer. I thought I'd like to get published. I thought I'd like people to to read the stuff. I I was very attracted. In theory, although I didn't actually know exactly the practice of fandom, but the idea that I'd come to a science fiction convention, I could talk to people about the work, and some of them would have read it. <laughs> and, and the fact that I've got some awards, uh, in, in, for me to say at this point, oh man, what, what else have I got to do? What, what, you want me to say I want another award? You want me to say what? I want well, to actually, be the grandmaster? Sort of you, know? you know, you, know you, you never had won a Nebula until recently, and you, you have won two Hugo Awards, and those are usually accorded to be the best awards in our genre anyway. So, all right, now you've done that. You've, you've made it up to the top of the mountain. Now what happens next? I mean, I, and I love those awards, but on the other hand, you know, I know a, people in this audience who d- deserve to have those awards too or don't have it, and you know, there maybe it was a nebula I deserve to have that I didn't get. And so in some ways the, the, the awards are kind of the luck of the draw, and if you're in the right place at the right time, you have to have some talent too, obviously, but they're not exactly the, the final word on the best stories of the year. What would I like to have? I would like to keep publishing, but I also have to say, I'm very much interested in the way publishing is changing, and so I guess one of the things I would wish for myself is that whatever changes are getting rung in in the next 10, 15 years, I'd be able to at least stay current, if not ahead of the game. So I want to think about what's happening on the internet. I want to continue to podcast. I'd love to do more audio plays. I'd love to be able, when I'm 80, to at least understand the popular culture of the day and not sort of throw my hands up and say, oh my God, 
I don't want a brain boost, you know? I don't want to jack into the net directly. I'm not me, I'm going to want to do it. And if I don't understand it, well, I'll have someone explain it to me, my kid or my grandson or whatever. I would like to stay up with what's happening. I was going to ask one more question, but I'm, I think I'm going to uh, open uh, this to questions from the audience if you have any. If you don't, I, I have many things you can ask about. Maybe you've already answered this, but do, do you regret getting involved with uh, a dialogue with Tom Godwin? No. God, no. I mean, I, I think that Tom Godwin was was mistaken. <laughs> was mistaken in his assumptions. And the fact that this is a core story of science fiction, I mean, I think part of what people who argue with that story, whether they argue in an essay or argue in fiction, are doing is helping the genre think more clearly about its own prejudices. The reason I wrote that story, which is Think Like a Dinosaur, is that Kessel was going on in the New York Review of Science Fiction and, and you know people were flocking to his defense. And there was an argument. I said, I don't want to rest, I don't want a frickin' essay. I'm gonna you know write a story and so and that's what I did. Tell us about the uh, friendship between you two guys, how you collaborate, what drew you together and the affinities you have. It's uh, you know it's it's great to see comrades up there on the stage. Yeah, I mean it really was probably the most fortuitous event of my career that Kessel was standing in front of an elevator in 1980 when I was on the elevator. It was in Boston, and one of these crowded elevators, probably in the, the Sheridan in, in Boston, and everyone's crowding into the elevator, and I get in, I'm one of the last ones in, so I'm turning around, it's like a, a sardine can, and he's standing in front of me, he's like 18 feet tall, but he's looking at my name badge and saying, James Patrick Kelly, didn't you write Death Therapy? And no one, no one had ever said anything like that before, like, you actually wrote a story? I said, yes. He said, I really like that story. The doors are closing. I said, I'll see you in the SIFWIP. <laughs> and, and lo and behold, shortly thereafter, he, he did come up. And he and I had a, uh, had a very different writing style. And we, I guess to some extent, we do have a different writing style still. But when we first met, we were very different. doing nothing alike. And he, I think, helped me get in touch with my inner English major, which was reeling from after my time at, at the University of Notre Dame because where I went to school, this science fiction stuff was garbage and trash and, and a waste of time. Professors who I very much respected, this is, you know, they're the successors to Mr. G, who were very influential in my career as an English major. You know, I, I should have been writing porn rather than science fiction or, or confession magazines. But... What John helped me realize is that all this stuff that I loved about Samuel Beckett and F. Scott Fitzgerald and the people I really thought were wonderful in, in the canon of, of Western literature, we could redeploy them for our own purposes here in science fiction land, and, and it was a good thing. And it was a good thing. It was a good thing for the mainstream, and it was a good thing for science fiction to look at those people anew. And, and so and what I taught John, I don't know. Oh, I, I mentioned actually earlier at a... Uh, I can't remember what it was, but I, uh, someone asked me what I got. And I told them, I, you, you completely changed uh, my style, okay? You really caused me to be much more economical. You learned, I, I learned how to cut things out, yeah. you know? I, so, uh, you know, now when I, my, my second drafts are often just cutting crap out, okay? Right. Cutting right. words out, right? right? And that, that was all your fault. Uh, so, uh, that's right. You could have been much richer at seven cents a word, right? <laughs> so, um, it, it's you know I don't. It's really not about me up here anyway. But, yeah, yeah. But uh, it's I just, about me. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it, this is kind of a dumb question.
But is there a story that you wish that you, you didn't have your name on it? That you know that that. Is, is, uh, <laughs> Where's Matt Cheney? <laughs> I went to Clarion twice. This is another confession. And so my first time at Clarion, I, the story I wrote in my fifth week was subsequently submitted to Galaxy and published. And it's an awful story. It's called... No, no, no. And so... Uh, <laughs> and so when you're a new writer and you get a story published in Galaxy, then it goes in your bibliography. And when you have ten stories and you've only had 10 stories and no novel, it's still in your bibliography. But when you are, in fact, publishing novels and people are saying, well, what else did you write? I have decided to excise that story from my bibliography. And so if you look at my bibliography online, you will see that my first published story is a story called Death Therapy, which is a much more promising start because my first published story, Death Therapy, was collected <laughs> in Terry Carr's Year's Best. And so... I started off at a run instead of at a, with a stumble. So that's the one I, I would pull my name off of. But I have to say, and I've said this many times, that you know, my first eight or nine stories, I served my apprenticeship in print. I think if you really, really like what I'm doing, I wouldn't recommend you start with any story before the cruelest month, which is like 10, 11 stories into my career. Some of these stories have flashes of what I can do, but they're also clunky and, and burdened down with excess prose, and I hadn't really learned to cut my own work. So I shouldn't have said anything to you when you were on the elevator then? No, death therapy, that sucks. <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> now. Did you have two plays or one play tonight? Could you talk a little about your playwriting, both genre and non-genre, and how you got into that? Sure. Um, I, I had a moment of existential despair. I had published probably 25 stories or so and a couple novels, and I really just sort of felt like my career was stalled. You know, I've been in a couple of best of the years, but I felt as hard as I had been working, I really wasn't getting anywhere in the field. And so one day I just said, oh, the hell with it. I'm going to write a play. I started by adapting some of the things that I had already written. And about this time, I actually got the wonderful opportunity through the New Hampshire State Council on the Arts to start working in the schools around the state, and so I've been in many, many schools doing residencies. I, I do as young as third grade, and I go right through high school. Uh, some theater pals of mine had proposed to a school that they were going to take over the school for a month and write a play, produce it, score it, and mount it. They had assembled this crew of artists, two actors, a sculptor who was going to do set design, a musician to score it, and a writer, a playwright, and the playwright dropped out of the thing at the last minute, and so they cast around, they asked me if I would be the playwright. And I had never written a play before, but writing a play with sophomores and juniors made me realize if they can do it, I can do it. <laughs> because they wrote the play, I just sort of corrected it or put it together. And so I actually did start writing plays. I have had one act produced. Uh, I've been off off-Broadway, been in several places in New Hampshire. And so then, in, uh, right around the turn of the century, around 1999 to 2001, I was very actively involved with a wonderful project called uh, Senior Theater at, uh, at SciFi.com, and I wrote five audio plays, some of which were adaptations of my stories, adaptations of my stage plays, and some of which were original. And that's sort of what set me off into podcasting as well, because working with sound engineers and people who knew their way around a microphone was very, very helpful. And then a couple years ago, my actor pals wanted to get a grant, and they were looking for historical plays. So I, I wrote a play about a full-length play about John Paul Jones, because he was the only historical personage in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, that we could think of that, <laughs> that, that people would actually come to see. And that was a modest success. And, and then 
I wrote a play, which I think is some of my best work. Of course, no one's ever seen it except the people who went to see it in New Hampshire. But I wrote a play about Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Uh, and it's, a, it's actually a science fiction play, or an alternate history play, because the first act is a historically accurate recreation of the argument that led up to the duel. At the end of Act One, they walk out into the plains in Weehawken, they shoot at each other, they both miss. Act Two is what happens 10 years later, the Civil War is broken out, except it's the South against the North, all the founding fathers are, are Southerners, and it's the North that is broken away. And, and I love that play. I love working with the people who produced it. And that's a thrill. And it's, it's a thrill that I think I, some of my pals have said, well, we're you going to write a screenplay? And I thought, why? I mean, what are your chances of getting a screenplay produced? If you write a stage play, you can find somebody to put it up and you can maybe work with the actors. And the whole theater scene, the, the ensemble uh, work, the collaboration is, is very zesty. And, of course, writers hardly ever accept when they give guest of honor interviews, get a round of applause. Or when you sit in an audience and people are applauding your play, that's a high. I mean, that's a very, very strong high for a guy who sits around, usually behind a typewriter typing and there's nobody cheering for him. One time, many years ago, you told me that had you not pursued writing, that you might have, if you had an alternative career in your mind, it would have been being an actor. Is this something that... If anyone has heard me give my Shatner-esque <laughs> readings of my stories, they can see the inner ham coming out. Yeah, I think that would have been fun. I do have sort of a, maybe hard for you to imagine it, but I have, do have sort of a, a mild bit of stage fright. As a matter of fact, uh, I was talking to Michael Kandel, I think, last night, and one nightmare we both share is that I don't have nightmares, fear of falling, but I have a nightmare where I'm, I'm backstage at a play and the director walks up to me and says, he didn't show up, you have to go out there, do his part, and, and just wing it, it's fine. And so they push me out and I'm there and the actor turns to me and says, well, Horatio. <laughs> I mean, really, I wake up in a cold sweat, maybe a couple times a year for some very similar thing. So I have never actually gone on stage where I didn't have like a script in front of me. A panel is a different thing. But to actually say lines where another actor can't go forward until I say my lines, I'm, I'm really afraid I would go up on my lines and, and freeze and so. I've actually, I actually had a play where an actor did go up on his lines. Uh, the director and I are sitting there. It's, it's the play you're gonna see tonight. And so the actor forgot his lines and it's a two person play. He walked off stage. And so his, the other person is there Looking, and the director and I are going like, where's the door, we gotta get out of here. <laughs> she walks off, and it's sort of an experimental play, as you'll see tonight. And so the audience is sitting there, not yet sort of grumbling, and she talked him back out, and they just picked it up from where they had left off. Afterward, there was a Q&A with the author and the, the director, and, and so we went 15 minutes into the Q&A before someone said, what I really, liked, but it was very strange, was when you all left the stage. What was that about? <laughs> and the, the actor said, well, I have to confess, I've never done this before, but I forgot my lines. And the audience was aghast. They thought they were totally into having sussed it out, that this was sort of some avant-garde move on my part. <laughs> to have them think about the nature of theater. When, <laughs> <laughs> the director and I were practically clawing each other's clothes off. Like, oh no, we're screwed. <laughs> so, uh, all right, I'll ask my last question. That's uh, all right. Uh, you're, you're, you're not. You're far from finished. Okay, but thank you, Tom. Far from finished. But, you know, all right. After you're gone, 
Uh, so what what do you want them to say about your your career, your oh, work? Jesus. What is that? What is that? What do you think would be? I think that if they're saying anything after I'm gone, I'd be very happy. You know, <laughs> uh, I mean, but the the fact of the matter is, gives me the willies to think about the people who I read as a, as a, as a kid. Theodore Sturgeon, Cordwainer Smith is in print, but some of the greats that I read as a kid are out of print, and and it makes me realize how evanescent this kind of a career is. It's like the Brockmire uh, Brief History of the Dead. You're only alive as long as people remember you and people are talking about you. So if people are remembering and talking about me, then my heirs will get some of the estate. That'd be great. Uh, here's my prediction that when you read my obit in Locus, it will say, he was the guy who wrote Think Like a Dinosaur. And I'm cool with that. <laughs> um. First an observation, uh, you were talking about making a contribution to the world, we have to grab the steering wheel, and I've always admired the way that you don't just write, you, you do a column, and you do um, you know, workshops, and you do New Hampshire for the Arts, and you, you seem to be making that contribution, so kudos to you on that. And my question is, opera? Opera? <laughs> <laughs> Very quickly, um, so right after I won the Hugo Award for Think Like a Dinosaur, I got this fan letter from this guy, and I opened it up, and, it's, and it says, uh, Dear Jim, I really like your work, and I just bought your anthology, or your collection, Think Like a Dinosaur. Um, yeah, blah, 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 I'm reading along. This is nice, it's a letter, it's not email, so it's classier already than most of the things I get. Um, and it's the third paragraph. I am the director of the Memphis Opera, and I was wondering if you would mind if I adapted your story, Faith, into an opera. About three minutes later, after I pulled myself through the hole in the ceiling that I had jumped up so high, and so uh, Michael Ching, the director of the Memphis Opera, wrote an opera based on my story, Faith, and it had its world premiere in Manchester. It also had an off-off-Broadway run. As a matter of fact, my pal Jonathan Lethem saw one of the performances, and it was also performed at the Worldcon in Chicago. And because Michael Ching is, is a working artist, it has likelihood that it will be produced again. And I've made a vow, wherever it's produced, I will go see it because... It's just such a thrill. And that was one of, those, one of the first big thrills is when I walked out onto the stage, they called me out after the opera was over and people were clapping and the cast was clapping. I was going, whoa, I could get used to this. But yeah, so I, it's not my opera, but it's based on a story of mine and I'm very proud of both the story. And who knew my little novelette wanted to be an opera when I grew up, so. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. That's it for now. I hope you enjoyed hearing me talk about myself. I know I did. Next time, it will be back to fiction. My plan is to read Going Deep, a brand new story that is currently on the newsstands in Asimov's science fiction magazine. As a matter of fact, the June issue is something of a JPK tribute issue, commemorating 25 consecutive years of June stories. Besides the story, it also has a new column by me and a special section in which some of my friends talk about me in front of my back. So consider stopping by wherever it is you get your magazine fix and 
picking up a copy. And check in here again next week for the world, no, galactic premiere of the podcast version of Going Deep. This is Jim Kelly. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll check back here again soon for more of Rereads. <laughs>